Without further ado, will you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. And if you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers, and they'll be certain to get one into your hands. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 17. We're studying the book of Revelation, of course, and this is the last of a three-part mini-series as we approach the end. The purpose of which is to bridge the gap between the end of the world and the end of our lives. In other words, what happens when we die and how do the events of the end times intersect with it? How do they intersect with our death and life after death and all of that? It's a pertinent question because eternity weighs in the balance and the answers to this question give us help and hope to hold fast. Pertinent questions and important answers. We started with the fact that we're all going to die unless Jesus returns in our lifetime. We're all going to die because of sin, our sin and Adam's sin. The good news is we found that the souls of believers go immediately to heaven. Good news. The bad news is that the souls of unbelievers go immediately to hell with no second chance. That's right now. What happens when you die right now? If you're a believer, your soul goes immediately to heaven to be with Jesus. If you're an unbeliever, your soul goes immediately to hell. Stark realities and stark truths. That's review. Fourth, Believers are resurrected at Christ's return. The souls of believers go immediately to heaven. The souls of unbelievers go to immediately hell. Then believers are resurrected at Christ's return. That's the next part of our personal eschatology. When Jesus comes again, those who are his will be made alive in the flesh. The flesh, literally, resurrected from the dead. It's a doctrine found all over the Bible, and I trust that, that you will find, as I have found, in my, even in my Bible reading this week, that you're going to start to see references to it and allusions to it and implications of it that you haven't seen before. It's all over the Bible. One of the reasons for that is because it is the pinnacle of our hope beyond this life before the new heavens and the new earth. It's found all over the Bible because it's a vital part of our hope in Christ and it's a vital part of our future. You see, it's not just heaven that we ought to anticipate with disembodied souls. It's a new heaven and a new earth with resurrected bodies. A resurrection alluded to in the Old Testament. A resurrection promised in the New. And a resurrection clarified for good. Let's take each of those in turn. First, it's alluded to in the Old Testament. The fact that believers are resurrected. It's alluded to in the Old Testament several times, in fact. It's found in several places of the Old Testament. Despite the fact that I had a professor once in my undergraduate studies who said that the concept of resurrection wasn't found in the Old Testament. And when he said it, it didn't quite ring true to me. I was like, I can't put my finger on it. I can't put my finger on chapter and verse on that. But I, I was pretty sure that wasn't quite right. 
sure enough, I had read otherwise. In passages like Isaiah 26, 19, where he says to God, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. What are you talking about that it's not found in the Old Testament? Your dead shall live, God. Their bodies shall rise. It's an obvious reference to our resurrection. As is Daniel 12, 2, a little after Isaiah. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting Contempt. It's a reference to both believers and unbelievers. Both will rise again. The former believers at, the, at Christ's return and the latter unbelievers a thousand years later at the end of the millennium. More on that in the weeks to come. And then there's Job 19, 25, and 26. How good is this one? For I know, Job said, that my Redeemer lives. Jesus hadn't even come yet. Centuries. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, that is, after I die and decay, yet in my flesh, in my flesh, I shall see God. Not just with the spiritual eyes of our heart, but in my flesh, with the physical eyes of our body, we shall see God, implying that he would rise again someday. Contrary to my professor, our resurrection is alluded to several times in the Old Testament, which I hope gives all the greater confidence and trust in what God's word says to you and all the more anticipation for it. Plus, it's promised in the New. It's alluded to in the Old Testament and it's promised in the New Testament. Like in 1 Corinthians 6.14 where the Apostle Paul says, God raised the Lord and will raise us and will also raise us up by his power. God raised the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will also raise us up by his power. It's promised. He'll do it. And Colossians 3.4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You also will be resurrected. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, verse 40, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus promise that he would resurrect those who believe in him. It's promised in the New Testament. And third, it's clarified for good. It's alluded to in the Old Testament, promised in the New, and clarified for good. Clarified in striking, striking detail that's inextricably connected to Christ's return. 1 Thessalonians 4. You check it out there with me. After giving instructions about life, Paul says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died. We don't want you to be uninformed that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, who have no confident expectation of something more. We do. We have a confident expectation of a great deal more. The resurrection of the saints, 
Unbelievers don't have that confident expectation. They don't have a confident expectation in anything. Anything. That's why Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope when those who are loved ones around us die. And those who are believers die in Christ. We grieve, yes, but not without hope, not without the quiet confidence, not without the rock-solid assurance, the blessed assurance that because Jesus lives, so do they. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He'll resurrect us. He'll resurrect us. And then he clarifies it for good. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. There it is, his return. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. At Christ's return, when he descends from heaven, the dead in Christ, believers, will rise first. Second part of verse 16, you see it there? The dead in Christ will rise first. They'll be made alive physically. Their bodies reconstituted and resurrected. It couldn't be clearer. Which is why the hymn writer of old could say, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. He could say it and he could write it because it's true. As a believer, he knew he would be among those who would be resurrected when the role is called, when Jesus returns. And it happens. This resurrection of our bodies at Christ's return, it happens at the end of the Great Tribulation. It happens at the end of the Great Tribulation. Believers are resurrected when Christ returns, and that happens at the end of the Great Tribulation. That's not new news for those of you who have been with us for the past year and a half. Maybe for those of you who haven't, it is new news. It's a sequence that I've gone to great lengths to show you from the Scriptures, found in, among other places, a series called End Times Overview that I preached last fall. You can find it, especially parts three and four highlighted there. You can find it on our website. I've also put a link to it in my sermon notes for this week, which you can also find on the website. In fact, I, I ran into someone last week in the lobby, and they've been a part of our church, have been a part of our church for a long time, and, and I, I mentioned the fact that, well, you can find my sermon notes online if you want to go back. And she was referencing something in the past. She's like, I didn't even know that. They're all out there. For better or for worse, they're out there. For now, one of the scriptures that indicates this timing is Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Matthew 24, 29 to 31, where Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, notice that, immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect, a.k.a. the believers, us, they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. After the great tribulation, Jesus will return to gather the elect, the believers, from all over the world. And we know from 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that those who have died, the dead in Christ, the, the, the dead elect in Christ, will be gathered first, resurrected first. The point being, it happens at the end of the great tribulation. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, the fact that we are going to be resurrected at Christ's return, if that doesn't encourage you to hold fast, if that doesn't increase your sense of anticipation, check this out. We'll not only be resurrected, but we'll be resurrected with glorified bodies. True, glorified bodies, amen. Not just a reconstituted old body, praise Jesus, as mine continues to slow down more and more and more and takes longer and longer to heal. And those of you who are 10, 15, 20 years ahead of me, you're like, you don't even know the half of it. That was a little bit too strong of an amen. We're not just going to have a reconstituted old body, but a new one. A new one. A body, catch this, like Jesus like Jesus. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, check it out, we shall be like him. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When Jesus appears, when he returns, when he descends from heaven, we will be resurrected to be just like him. How good is that? How good is he? And then Philippians 3, 20 and 21 is even more explicit. It says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Our bodies will be like Christ's body, glorious and glorified. The same kind of body that Jesus had after his resurrection. After his resurrection, glorified. The same body he had at his ascension. The same body that he has right now as I speak in heaven. Jesus is not a disembodied spirit in heaven. Jesus is in a physical glorified body in heaven. And ours is going to be just like his. Just like his. The question is, what's it like? What is a glorified body like? What was his like? And the answer, at least part of it, is found in Luke 24. And so keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll come back to that. But turn with me to Luke 24, verses 36 to 43. Luke 24, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Third book of the New Testament. Luke 24, verses 36 to 43. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared. You might recall from your own Bible reading. Jesus appeared and spoke to two guys on the road to Emmaus. And when Jesus disappeared after breaking bread with them, and they finally realized who in the world they'd been talking to, they hurried back, these two guys did, they hurried back to Jerusalem to tell the 11 remaining disciples who, in fact, they just saw. And Luke says in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. And I, every time I read that, I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. You died. Your grave is empty. Nobody has yet seen you except a few like Peter and Mary Magdalene and a couple of others. And, and, and suddenly you're appearing to us out of the blue while we've got the doors locked and you're telling us to like stay calm, peace to you. Thank goodness he meant it and still does. Peace to you. But they were startled, as you might imagine, and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, in other words, it was so amazing they, they couldn't believe it, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. The first characteristic of our glorified bodies, like that of his body, is that we're going to be visible. We're visible. The first of six characteristics here. Visible. Even though the disciples didn't know what they were seeing at first, they were seeing something, something real. He was visible. Second, we'll be tangible. Our bodies are going to be tangible. They're going to be physical, able to be touched. Touch me, Jesus said. And later on, Thomas did, didn't he? He put his finger in the nail holes of his hands and he put his hand in, his, in the side of Jesus, which he could do because the glorified body of Jesus consisted of flesh and bone, just like he says. And he proved it by eating a piece of fish. I don't think that he was hungry. I think he did so in order because glorified bodies presumably aren't going to get hungry. I think he did it in order to further prove that he was there in the flesh, that glorified bodies are physical, tangible bodies. But we're also going to be unrestrained. Visible, tangible, and unrestrained. Unrestrained, that is, by physical limitations, the physical limitations of life around us. It's hard to fathom, but if we're going to be like Jesus, it's likely that doors, walls, and distance are no object. Hard to fathom. A little bit on the superhero sort of stuff. Where do you think that they get those sort of ideas? Nothing new under the sun. It's hard to fathom, but if we're going to be like him, it's likely that those things are going to be no object, no problem, just like they weren't for Jesus. Like on the road to Emmaus, when he vanished from their sight, it says. 
and then appear to, and if you're thinking, well, maybe they, you know, just didn't quite get it right, and maybe that really just means that, you know, one of them got up to go to the restroom, the other took the dishes to the table, and then Jesus vanished out the door or something like that. That's not what it says. Naturalist. It says that he vanished from their sight. And then he appeared a short while later to the, to the disciples through locked doors, John chapter 20 tells us. And then again, eight days after that, through more locked doors. Because glorified bodies presumably are unrestrained by physical limitations. You're going to be a superhero. But they are also recognizable. They may be unrestrained, but they're also recognizable. In verse 39, Jesus said, it is I myself. You see it there? It is I myself. In other words, it's me implying that he was able to be recognized. He couldn't have legitimately said that if in fact he was unable to be recognized as the person that he has always been and certainly was to them for the three years that he walked and talked with them as an adult. It's me. I'm recognizable. He looks similar in appearance to the way that he looked before. That's four of the six characteristics. Then we find two more in 1 Corinthians 15. The first from verse 52, saying that the dead will be raised imperishable. Have you noticed that word in your Bible reading? Imperishable? As in free of sickness and decay. Free of sickness and and decay, imperishable. No more colds, no more cancer, and no more disease. No more disabilities and no more injuries. Those of you who are doctors will be out of business. And I'm quite certain that you'll be thankful to God for that. I'm going to be out of business too. Worship leaders are going to be in business. I'm going to be out of business. We're going to be free of sickness and decay, just like Jesus, just like him. And last, we're going to be full of strength and power, full of strength and power. 1 Corinthians 15, 43 says that it, referring to our body, it is sown in weakness. That is, it exists right now in weakness. We are weak in our bodies. It is sown in weakness, it says. It is raised in power. It is raised in power. Power as in we'll never again get tired. We'll never slow down, get down, or run down. Power as in we will mount up with wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not faint. That kind of power. Six characteristics of our glorified, resurrected bodies. I love the story of John G. Payton in this respect. I've mentioned to him before, Payton was a missionary to the New Hebrides in the mid to late 1800s, if you can kind of get that time frame in mind, mid to late 1800s. New Hebrides is a series of tiny little islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, now known, I think we have a slide there for you, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, literally, it's now known as Vanuatu, Vanuatu, New Hebrides. It's a semi-modern country, it's a developing country coming along more and more, but at the time of Peyton's arrival, 
It was cannibalistic. Extremely so. So much so that when his wife and newborn son died of tropical diseases, Peyton had to sleep on their graves, literally sleep on their graves, to prevent the natives from digging their bodies up and devouring them. And 19 years before he was preparing to go, two other missionaries were clubbed to death and actually eaten. Which is why so many, both outside the church and inside his own church, and the church at the time, that's why so many opposed Peyton's plan to go, including those like a certain Mr. Dixon, who he recorded later on, Peyton recorded later on in his autobiography as saying that he exploded on him and said, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals, unquote. To which Peyton replied, and this is what I love, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Unquote. I love that. I love the confidence of it. I love the truth of it. I love the biblical perspective on it. Talk about thinking biblically. Talk about conforming your thoughts to God's thoughts. Talk about measuring everything that goes on in your mind and heart through the pages of this book. I love that. I love that it doesn't matter how you die or how long you've been dead. When Jesus returns, he'll make all things new. Worms or cannibals or anything else. He'll make all things new. He'll give those who believe a new glorified body just like his. I can't wait. And it's all going to happen much quicker now. How appropriate is that? It's all going to happen in a moment. It's all going to happen in a moment. An instant, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We shall not all sleep. That is, we won't all die, he says. Some of us will still be living when Christ returns. But we shall all be changed. Here it is. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Changed just like that. That. Twinkling of an eye quickest moment possible. Changed to meet the Lord in the air. Not just changed to be changed, not just changed to be like Jesus, but changed to meet Jesus, to meet him in the air. That's the next moment, just like we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want you to turn back there with me now. 1 Thessalonians 4. Turn back there for a minute. Second part of verse 16 again. The dead in Christ will rise first, Paul says. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, here it is, to meet the Lord in the air. Our souls will be reunited with our new glorified bodies, and we will be airborne for the greatest church service in the history of the world. Can you imagine? 
The greatest church service ever has been, ever will be. Millions of believers from all time gathering in the air for a visible, tangible meeting with Jesus. Let's go. Let's go. You say, come on, pastor. That's so outlandish, I can't believe it. To which I say, that's one of the reasons I do believe it. It's so unbelievable that nobody in their right mind would make such a thing up. Nobody in their right mind would commend it to, you know, possible followers like, hey, this will get them. Let's, let's make up something that's not even in left field. It's out on Waveland Avenue. That'll do it. <laughs> now, every single person who has died in Christ is going to be resurrected as his, at his return to meet him in the air. And they'll be joined by those still alive. We've read it several times now. They'll be joined by those still alive. We shall all be changed, including those who are alive at the end of the great tribulation. Verse 17 again. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. We'll all be there when the roll is called. But we won't be there for long. Because next is that we will return with Christ to earth. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first to meet the Lord in the air, joined by those still alive, and return with Christ to earth. Immediately return with him to earth. That's what the word meet means in verse 17. As I've explained before, it's a Greek word used to describe a welcoming party for a dignitary that goes out to greet such a dignitary and then immediately returns into the city or where they're, wherever they were returning to with the dignitary. That's what is encompassed in the word meet, apentesis. In this case, we go out to meet him in the air and return to terra firma. Return to earth. And the first order of business, as we saw at the end of Revelation 19, is to witness the battle of Garmageddon. To witness the showdown at O.K. Corral. A short-lived battle at the end of the Great Tribulation, if you recall, when the kings of the earth unite in hopes of eliminating the people of God and the Son of God once and for all. A last-ditch effort after all that has gone on in the Great Tribulation, which makes the unbelievers teeth grind, having lost so many and having lost so much, so few of them remain. And here they are at the Battle of Armageddon. They gather the armies of the world under the auspices of the Antichrist in order to eliminate the people of God and the Son of God. It's like John says in Revelation 19, 19, I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse, that's Jesus, and against his army, that's us. Gathered to kill us. A battle royale. Except we won't do anything but witness it. True. Because the world will be met with the unexpected, overpowering force of God's word. The same word that created the world, the same word that's going to destroy the world, the same word that raises people from the dead, the same word that saves souls, the same world that condemns, the same word that condemns people in the world who don't believe. They're going to be met with the overpowered, unexpected force of God's word. 
and they're going to be defeated in a moment. God's spoken word, ending the battle as soon as it starts. That's what happens when we die. That's what happens. That's how our personal end time intersects with the world's end time. One glorious, amazing day, starting with our resurrection and ending with a victory. The question is, will you be there? All of this is for naught if you're not going to be there. Like when the roll is called up yonder, like a sergeant calls for soldiers or a teacher calls for disciples or a shepherd calls for sheep. Come on. When the roll is called up yonder, will you be present and accounted for? Resurrected and glorified? Oh, I hope so. Because it's a day you don't want to miss. In fact, it's a day you can't afford to miss. Let's pray. Lord, we live, we live for that day. We do. We long for it, God, especially after looking at scriptures like this. We long for the day when the trumpet of the Lord will sound and time shall be no more. When the saved of earth are gathered and changed forevermore. God, we live for it. And so fill us, we pray. And fuel us with these truths. Light our fire and increase our hope of glory all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship the Lord.